Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We'd like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. Our last podcast of the 2015 season features Brando Skyhorse at St. Paul's Highland Park Library. Novelist and memoirist Brando Skyhorse made a name for himself in 2011 with the publication of The Madonnas of Echo Park. This fiction debut, set in one of Los Angeles's most racially diverse neighborhoods, where Skyhorse himself grew up, garnished accolades for its contributions to the important, ongoing dialogue on what it means to be Mexican in America. It won the 2011 Penn Hemingway Award, as well as the Sue Kaufman Award for First Fiction. Skyhorse's recent one-of-a-kind memoir is equally compelling. In Take This Man, Skyhorse recounts stories from a singular childhood, during which his mother hid the truth of his heritage and raised him to believe he was Native American. Kirkus Reviews named it one of its best nonfiction books of 2014, and NBC News called it one of its 10 best Latino books for that year. If you are listening to this with children, we would like to mention that this podcast contains adult language and sexual content. And now, Brando Skyhorse. Thank you. How are you doing, everybody? Thank you for coming. Yeah, thank you. That wasn't a rhetorical question. I love it. I can, I can see we're going to have a lot of fun here tonight. So thank you very much for coming out on this Tuesday evening. Uh, it's a thrill to be back here in Minneapolis. I was just wandering around downtown and uh, walked into a bar and had some cheese curds and a PBR. <laughs> and uh, I see some of you are familiar with this location. And then uh, about maybe an hour later, I walked just one block away and had this really amazing glass of wine and uh, duck tartare. And it's just so nice to be back in a real city again. So thank you for your, your hospitality and your warmth. Um, I'm going to read uh, a little bit from Madonna's of Echo Park, and then I'm going to read about maybe 18 minutes from the memoir. And then we can open it up for questions if you'd like to ask me something. I hope I have answers for you. Uh, I know there are many other things that you could choose to do with your time here. So the fact that you are here supporting the arts in a library on a Tuesday night, uh, I think is a phenomenal thing. And I hope that if you do not go to this reading series often, that uh, you make an effort to come and hear writers who come and visit your town. I flew in all the way from Hartford, Connecticut to be with you here tonight. So uh, I think it's really important to acknowledge that writers like 
people who come out to listen to their readings. So um, thank you very much for being here. So I want to read just maybe a page and a half from the Madonnas of Echo Park. And uh, if you don't know the book, it's um, if any of you here have seen the movie Crash, Remember that movie came out, Crash, a few years ago? I see some people shaking their heads where it was all these intersecting stories set in Los Angeles. So imagine if everyone in the cast was Mexican. So like Crash, but with Mexicans. So basically if Sandra Bullock was Sama Hayek and blah, 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 that's kind of the conceit there. And I'm not trying to be glib. It's basically imagining a cast of characters living in a very specific part of Los Angeles their lives intersecting without necessarily how their without necessarily realizing how their actions impact others. So let me just read to you about a page or so from the beginning of the book. And uh, this chapter is called Bienvenidos, which means welcome. We slipped into this country like thieves onto the land that once was ours. Those who had never been here before could at last see the promised land in the darkness. Those who had been deported and come back, only a shadow of that promise. Before the sun rises on this famished desert, stretching from the fiercest undertow in the Pacific to the steepest flint-tipped crest in the San Gabriel Mountains, the temperature drops to an icy chill, the border disappears, and in a finger snap of a blink of an eye, we are running, carried on the breath of a morning frost into hot kitchens to cook your food waltzing across miles of tile floor to clean your houses, settling like dew on shaggy front lawns to cut your grass. We run into this American dream with a determination to shed everything we know and love that weighs us down if we have any hope of survival. This is how we learn to navigate the terrain. I measure the land not by what I have, but by what I have lost, because the more you lose, the more American you can become. In the rolling jade valleys of Elysian Park, my family lost their home in Chavez Ravine to the cheers of gringos rooting for a baseball team they stole from another town. Down the hill in Echo Park, I lost my wife and the woman I left her for when I ran out of excuses and they ran out of forgiveness. Across town in Hollywood, I lost my job of 18 years when a restaurant that catered to fashion and fame found its last customers were those who had neither. And my daughters, they're both lost to me somewhere in the blinding California sunshine. What I thought I could not lose was my place in this country. How can you lose something that never belonged to you? So, yeah, you can applaud for that. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> That's a little taster, it's a little appetizer before we get into the main course here. So uh, I wrote a memoir, uh, and that is to say I spent 18 years of my life writing a memoir, uh, which I don't advise you to do uh, because um, it's just not a good uh, value for a dollar in terms of time expended. Uh, there are many better ways to make money than to spend 18 years working on a book. But uh, here, here's the story. So when I was three years old, my Mexican father, Candido Ulloa, abandoned me and my mother, uh, and uh, my mother decided to use that opportunity to reinvent both of us as American Indians. So my mother, who was named Maria Teresa Banaga, which is actually a Filipino name because her father was, uh, her biological father, who was Mexican, abandoned her as well, became Running Deer Skyhorse. And my name, which was Brando Kelly Ulloa, U-L-L-O-A, I became Brando Skyhorse. And I didn't know that I wasn't an American Indian 
until I was about 12 or 13 years old. And uh, when I found out, after just repeatedly pestering my mother, asking very pointed and obnoxious questions, which is what you do when you're you know, becoming a teenager, I was encouraged to keep up that lie. So for about a third of my life, I didn't know that I was Mexican. For the next third of my life, I knew I was a Mexican and lied about it. And then the final third, the third that I'm in now, is basically what I'm doing now. Uh, I don't really consider this an apology tour per se, but it's my way, it's my way of sort of acknowledging that uh, I had a very complicated story. I guess, uh, uh, I don't know if any of you heard the, the story uh, several months ago about uh, Rachel Dolezal, who was just a, a white woman who was passing as African-American. And the first thought I heard when I heard that story was like, oh, my mom. They would have gotten along real well, real well. So and I, after I read a couple of these sections, I think you'll understand what I'm talking about. So I was raised by my grandmother and my mother in a house that my grandmother owned in Echo Park, which was a predominantly, at the time, a predominantly Latino and Vietnamese neighborhood. And uh, we lived there, uh, our family lived there for about 50 years. And I also had uh, a cast of rotating stepfathers, about five in total. So what I thought I would do is I would read just sort of an opening section to give you an idea of um, sort of an impressionistic introduction into uh, our, our household and then tell you a little bit about my grandmother and tell you a little bit about my mother. And then after that, kind of give you a sense of, uh, you know, the, the consequences of living a life uh, which is in sort of between these various identities. And uh, after I finish the reading, I know that many of you might have questions because, I mean, Brando Skyers, how could you not have a question or a series of questions? And uh, if I take an opportunity to respond from the book, it's not because I'm trying to sell you more copies, but I feel that I've articulated uh, the answers to many of these questions better in the book than I probably could here. So I hope that you'll indulge me uh, that opportunity to do that here. So uh, this, is, um, this is Echo Park. 1973. My grandmother's breath, racing across my baby's shoulders like western clouds. I'm propped against the sofa between my grandmother's thick varicose calves, dressed just in toddler shorts, like an oversized stuffed bear. A phalanx of whirring plastic fans don't cool the soupy air as much as shuffle it in a circle around us. Grandma says, and blows on my hot neck, rustling the pouty tips of my shoulder-length hair off my back. Some days my grandmother's breath blots out the violent heat. Some days it blows the storms ashore. My mother's voice forms over our mountain range of a couch. It could shower a loving rain, tickle me with a sing-along for the summer ants crawling up my legs, or change the air above into a run-home-to-mama sky like a russet storm. Where's my papas? Mom asks, shoveling me into her arms and blowing a raspberry on my tummy. Papas means potatoes in Spanish. Shh, be quiet, my grandmother says, and hold him like a mother. My grandmother's breath, my mother's voice, my whole world, my every happiness. My grandmother was the man of the house. 
She was overseer of chores, washer and clothesline hanger of garments, food shopper with a personal two-wheeled basket trolley she pulled up the stairs. Head chef and dishwasher, payer of utilities, trimmer of hedges, sweeper of our front staircase, and controller of the single television in the living room, complete with a cable hookup and an oversized recliner that my grandfather Emilio had originally bought for him and June to share. Well into his mid-60s, my grandfather Emilio dressed for work in a suit jacket, tie, and fedora. He rode the bus almost an hour to and from his job as a line cook in a Glendale delicatessen and came home exhausted. After feeding our dogs fermented chicken and liver dinner leftovers from a greasy paper bag, he wanted nothing more than to watch television in a comfortable chair. Instead, Emilio floated like a ghost across my grandmother's line of television site without a kiss or a greeting to his own separate bedroom. My mother, grandmother, and grandfather each took the three small bedrooms in our house. I shared my grandmother's bed until I was 16 years old because my mother wanted to save her bed for husbands. No matter how late he came home or how tired he was, out of respect, Emilio never sat in that recliner. That was his wife's chair. My grandmother June's beat started with a pre-dawn coffee. On Sundays before church at La Placita on Alvera Street, she'd splash in some Kahlua. I know God is bullshit, but it makes me feel better for an hour, she'd say, sipping from an oversized mug. A pink, smog-tinged sunrise melted atop an endless field of marzipan streetlight while she readied me like a mother for school. My mother, Maria, was elsewhere getting herself ready for work. She hated mothering me. Don't run too fast on the playground, grandmother said while tying my shoes because you still can't tie your laces. Make sure you have your lunch tickets with the right date on them, she said, and patted down my pockets or else you won't eat. I blacked out my tongue, imagining my government-sponsored school lunch choices. Sloppy Joe paste on spongy hamburger buns, shellacked pizza toast, and fruit that tasted like old toothpaste. Don't be spoiled, my grandmother said, and don't untuck your shirt like a cholo, she said, slipping a Le Tigre shirt over me. Make friends with them. They know how to fight. Now take my hand, my grandmother said, and walk on the outside near the street so men won't think I'm a whore. I pulled my hand away from hers in fourth grade and then at her escort to the bus stop in seventh grade. After that, she settled on her crow's nest of a front porch. The vantage point was wide enough that she could watch me walk down the entire length of Portia Street to the corner where I'd wave goodbye from the front of Little Joy Juniors. It's a gay bar, my grandmother said. Go inside if any pervert follows you home. It's the safest place in the neighborhood. When I was off to school, it was time to start her day. If every ghetto has a hierarchy, my grandmother June was the unofficial mayor of Echo Park. She collected our neighborhood stories and bartered them with everyone, whatever their language. She could float with uncommon ease among Echo Park's different worlds and ethnicities, telling dirty jokes to the blood-cloaked Mexican butchers at Roy's Market, who'd pull me chicharrones, fried pork rinds from heaven, the beautiful azure-smocked Latina cashiers at Pioneer Market. My first crush was a black-haired pioneer cashier named Felicia the Korean-run video stores in the 1980s that smelled of boiled cabbage, whose owners called her grandma. 
The Italians at Copper's Deli who made the mistake of putting an underwhelming Snoopy fondant on my birthday cake. I don't know what the hell that thing on my grandson's cake is, but that ain't Snoopy. And the Jewish owners of Jerry's department store, one of several local businesses that extended our family in-store credit for years of loyal patronage, despite sometimes periods of absence punctuated by a grotesque fight like the one with the store's matriarch, Shauna, over $10. Now I know why Hitler shoved all the Jews into ovens, my grandmother said, clutching my hand tight, and it's a shame he missed you too. Grandma, I said outside the store, I don't think you should have said that. <laughs> oh, I was just making her day interesting, my grandmother said. Stop taking everything I say so goddamn seriously. No apologies later, in a month or two, we were back there shopping like nothing had happened when the politicians downtown refused to put up a stoplight on sunset after a child died crossing the boulevard. My grandmother rounded up my mother and a friend in a three-woman protest and began randomly stepping out into traffic disruptively until a light was installed. This was how the mayor did business. So now that I've told you a little bit about my grandmother, <laughs> uh, let me tell you a little bit about my mother. It was your idea, Brando, my mother said, for me to become a phone sex operator. My mother, grandmother, and I were together watching television in the living room. This was before my mother and I had separate televisions in our own rooms. Three televisions for three people who couldn't share. On that day's Donahue, phone sex operators. Women who have explicit sexual conversations with men for money. A black silhouette with crescent rolls of vertiginous hair spoke in a digitally graveled voice about the virtues of the job, working from home, lots of tax-free income, power over men. I turned to my mother and said, you could do that. <laughs> How had I, at 10 years old, become my mother's pimp? She left from what she called straight jobs to sex worker because she felt victimized by a series of menial office jobs, the last of which was at a recruiting office, the ironically named Manpower, where she worked as a headhunter. She quit when she was cheated out of a large commission or to translate into what she'd call white man words, fired for insubordination. There were few work options left to a two-year community college graduate, an amateur unemployed paralegal via a mail-order diploma course, and a Maranello schools of beauty dropouts, too many fights with her customers. She replied to a tiny box ad soliciting adult phone actresses for a company called Inside Moves in Pacific Palisades. It operated like a taxi service. A client called asking for a woman with particular attributes, tall, voluptuous redhead, and gave his credit card and callback number to a dispatcher or screener. She'd then contact one of the operators or girls on call and give her the client's request. The girl then called the client collect at the number he, almost always a he, had provided. When the call was over, the screener would charge the client's credit card based on how many minutes the call had lasted. The girl earned a percentage based on how many minutes were billed. The longer she kept the client on the phone, the more money both she and her company made. My mother gave an alias for her payroll check. 
Over the more than 10 years that she'd work in the business, she'd cycle through new billing names for a host of reasons. Marriage, switching companies. Remarriage, eluding obsessive clients. Re-remarriage. She'd, she'd accumulated a deck of bad fake IDs to cash checks with no payroll tax deducted that erased any trace of her Mexican ancestry and spliced together her two fake Indian names. Running Deer Skyhorse, Maria Running Skyhorse, Maria Running Deer, Mia Skyhorse. Mia was a favorite alias. She fanned them out like a deck of cards. I can be anyone I want, she said. It wasn't easy at first. My mother vomited after her first several phone calls. Then she got the hang of it. After several calls experimenting with various names, ethnicities, and gradations in voice, a clear winner emerged. My Mexican fake Indian mother became Kara Lee, a 23-year-old Irish grad student from Chicago, Illinois. <laughs> Straight sex calls, missionary no kink, were simple. Rape, incest, molestation calls the toughest, though she could do a convincing mimic of an 80-year-old girl. Give me a wowie pop, she'd say at the kitchen table to make me laugh, though I knew without understanding that she was never this chaste on the phone. Golden and brown shower calls, her explanations, useful verbal ammunition for the coming leap to junior high, made her laugh. Domination calls were her favorite because they didn't involve graphic sex. On an ever-expanding Rolodex, she kept a card for every man she spoke to, noting the date and length of each call, where he lived, when his birthday was, his children's names, and whether he liked to imagine Kara Lee, that is, my mother, in black stockings or red lace panties or crotchless. She listened to their insecurities, celebrated their triumphs, commiserated with them over life's disappointments, and acknowledged with handwritten thank you notes their gifts of flowers, chocolates, and classical music sent to her call center. Her calls could last anywhere from 10 minutes, get them off, then get them off, to marathon six-hour therapy sessions, but her therapeutic duties were always second to arousing her clients. My mother scoured pornographic magazines for sexual scenario ideas, but was too embarrassed and too tethered to her telephone to buy them. So she sent my grandmother to the neighborhood magazine stand on the corner of Sunset and Echo Park Avenue. Hola, how are you, Julio, my grandmother would say. Oh, como estas, abuelita? Everything good? Oh, bien, bien, it's busy, you know? What do you got today, she asked. I got the new penthouse form you wanted, Julio said, all business. My mother got her best ideas from forms. How about, my grandmother said, putting on her bifocal reading glasses and looking at a list, jugs and high society. That's next week. Well, then give me the form, a Reader's Digest, and an Ellery Queen. I need my mysteries, my grandmother said. Oh, and don't forget the new hustler. <laughs> the money my other mother earned was good for the 1980s, up to 600 tax-free dollars a week, not including her welfare checks and food stamps. With our new fortunes came a cornucopia of constipating middle-class American comforts. Hamburger helper, spam, Hormel chili, shake-and-bake chicken, hungry man frozen dinners. We bought a microwave the size of an air conditioner and a popcorn popper that roared like a military hairdryer. Out with the Kool-Aid, in with the Capri Sun and Sunny Delight. Cans seared foil and poked through cellophane replaced fruit rinds and empty flour sacks in our, in our garbage. We graduated from government cheese to Velveeta. I drank whole milk by the gallon and ate so much bacon I broke out in hives. 
My mother had packed up my stuffed animals long ago, but now our play-acting games moved to the telephone. She'd read reviews in Los Angeles Magazine of expensive restaurants in Beverly Hills and West Hollywood where it was impossible to get reservations. Do you think you can get us a table, my mother asked. Here's the telephone. Call them and let's see. Mater D's that scoffed at my mother's name softened when they heard mine, Brando's Skyhorse. We celebrated a 9.30 table at Spago, party of two, by ordering a pepperoni pizza from the local joint down the block. My mother had a strict policy at first, that I never enter her locked room while she was on call. But with her home all day, I gravitated toward her like a satellite. Over time, the membrane of my mother's closed door became porous, and I could gauge when to leave a tray of food by her closed door, or whether I could creep into her bedroom to lay out dinner on her bed. Ever the improviser, she'd wink and smile over how boring a call was, or what pantomime a funny second performance were for me. One time I brought a salad in a large stainless steel bowl and she told her client that she was going to, quote, make a salad in his asshole. Then she had me stir the leafy contents for her, making sure the fork scraped hard against the metallic rim. Other times she asked me to slap my palms together to lend flesh-slapping effects to a character she created called the Pampers Man, a grown man she kept in her house on a chain who liked to be spanked and diapered. None of this felt inappropriate to me. <laughs> We were like two children playing a practical joke on an unsuspecting adult. Perhaps on his end of the phone, he was looking at one of the special advertisement cards Inside Moves had printed up to promote my mother's popular fictional creation. On the card, Kara Lee had pouty, deep sea green eyes, helium lips, ice pick sharp cheekbones, 36, 24, 36 measurements, and curly shoulder length brunette hair, and wore striped V-cut panties with a tight t-shirt clasped into a sexy knot around her taut belly. In red letters on the shirt, I am the woman your mother warned you about. But one if this woman was your mother. Thank you, thank you. It's kind of an R-rated thing. <laughs> so, um, uh, so I'm gonna read this, uh, this bit here at the end. Uh, Whenever I tell people I had five stepdads, my mom was a phone sex operator, she tried to kill me twice, usually people say, hey man, are, are, you, are you okay now? Like, is it all, you're like, is it all better? And uh, this is basically what I tell them. I was about six or seven when my mother took me to a psychic friend who told me I'd live past lives. She said I'd once been a Scottish prince who was trampled to death by horses in his 30s, and in a more recent life, a soldier who died in the Vietnam War from stepping on a landmine. Not long after, I had vivid dreams of falling off a carriage in what my seven-year-old mind dreamed Scotland looked like. Everything was made from marbles, and of my legs being blown off in a faraway delta, I'm sure I remembered from a Hollywood movie. The explosion would snap my legs on my mattress and wake me up. In both of those dreams, I was a father. I never saw my child's face or heard its voice, but I knew I had left a child, a son, I think, behind somewhere. I'd spent most of my 20s in a relationship with someone in her 30s, unable to commit to fatherhood even as I knew that her chances at a baby dwindled with each passing year. I told her, I'm too young. Then I told her, I'm too poor. When I got to my 30s and told her, 
I'm too crazy. She said, you're right, and had a child with someone else. I never had any doubt she'd become the great mother she is today, but I wonder still, could I be a good father? It's presumptuous to assume I'll be a father at all. I'm 40 years old and childless. Part of me waited this long because I knew I was an unstable man who'd make an unstable father. I didn't want to pass on my depression to my children genetically or by example. And how could I take care of a child when I had no model for what a good father was? Remembering my five fathers individually, they lied, drank, cheated, stole, and abandoned their loved ones. I know I can claim no moral high ground with them. These are the people who taught me. I've cheated on lovers, stolen people's time, and abandoned friends. I lied for years about who I was and made up stories in college about a thuggish life in an inner city jungle that was never really that rough. My own brief sojourn into quote unquote storytelling, inventing a fictional life as a sunset strip club kid so I'd seem more interesting. Seeing someone shot in the head at point blank range always rang out like the bullshit it was. Succumbing to my mother's myth-making made me realize that every storyteller needs more than good stories. He needs to understand why he's telling the stories he tells. Narrative is breath. My mother lied in her stories for the same reason I've told the truth in this one. From the breath my, mother, my grandmother gave me to the breath it takes for you to read this sentence, stories sustain us. They carry us through the lives we convince ourselves we can't escape to get to the lives we ought or need to live instead. They create out of endless chaos, a beginning, a middle, and an end. It took the writing of this book, which I've been thinking about for almost 20 years, to understand what my, made my mother tell such incredible tales. Stories can help you survive. They can transform your life. They can transform you from where you are into wherever you want to be. My mother turned her cage of a bedroom into a castle. Her prison became a launch pad for escape into a whole new identity. Perhaps that's why my mother was such a fan of killing herself off in her stories. She'd revealed that her lingering brain tumor had taken one last fatal turn for the worst and with time so short, revel in the temporary attention I gave her over and over again. Whenever I hear that someone dying of an incurable disease has tricked an always disbelieving public through a fake Facebook profile, I sigh and think, Mom? But I understand. Strangely, so do others. I talk about my mother often when I give class talks about my first novel, The Madonnas of Echo Park, which is set in the largely Mexican-American neighborhood pending gentrification of Echo Park. How is it that someone with the most American Indian of names came to write a story set among Mexicans. It's impossible to talk about that book without telling my and my mother's stories. In Idaho, I met an American Indian college student named Effie Hernandez. I never told my story to an Indian before. Here at last, I thought was my reckoning. I'd have to pay for all the attention and special treatment my name had given me. It was my turn to stay silent and absorb someone's rightful anger for appropriating a name, a culture, a people. After a thorough grilling during the class, Effie approached me afterward. I was prepared not to like you, she said, but I understand now why you lived the life you did. 
of all the things your mother could have wanted to be, she wanted to be American Indian. That's pretty amazing. The great American Indian writer Sherman Alexie once joked, Indians have to be so careful around non-Indians. We just make stuff up. I'm almost as good a storyteller as my mother is, but I'm a terrible liar. My mother wasn't an Indian, but by Sherman's metric, she was the perfect Indian storyteller. I'm not an Indian either, but feel I'm still somewhere between two names and two cultures. It's difficult because I can't even occupy the gray space mixed children try to claim for themselves. I get emails from my college's American Indian alum network that say, dear native alum, <laughs> while I struggle to learn Spanish beyond a second grade level. In New York, where I lived for many years, I was less Mexican or American Indian and more some kind of ethnic superhero, passing man, capable of passing for whatever any member of another ethnicity wanted me to be. In their Indian or Pakistani or Latino eyes, they scan me over and ask, are you like me? Yes, I nod, but who is that? Who am I? I've been mistaken for Turkish, Pakistani, Indian American, Sri Lankan, Persian, Afghani, Egyptian, and a dozen other ethnicities. Each man, for it is usually a man who mistakes me as one of his own, says, oh, you'd be right at home in my country. The feeling of another man claiming me as a member of his own people and his own homeland is irresistible to someone who feels, to this day, he truly has neither. I'm also somewhere between two fathers, my biological father who left me and the stepfather who stayed in my life for 35 plus years. He tried to raise me in between all the men my mother married. I'm no longer a boy who needs to wait under a gauzy streetlight on a curb outside a bar or hide in the backseat of a car for a father to take me home. Two fathers are already there waiting for me. One has something I want, the other has something I need. I can't decide which father is which. When I dream of my own children, there's a fiery, rosy-cheeked daughter named Nova, or a son who's still nameless because it took so long for me to find my own name. In my dreams, I sing to my children in a golden lullaby, I am your father. I will teach you every day what every father I was lucky enough to have taught me. I will put your needs first above my fear, anxiety, and depression, and you will help me appreciate chaos more than I did when I was a child. I will strive to be perfect and fall far short. I will fail you. I will embarrass you. I will be frustrated with you for petty reasons that will later make me ashamed. I will expose you to, I hope, limited levels of familial insanity. I will be there for you every day of my whole life. I hear my mother's voice saying, like at the end of the movie when the credits begin to roll, do you think Brando makes it? Of all the things the men I call my fathers taught me, the lesson that matters most is spoken in six different voices. Sometimes it is enough to survive. And when I am a father at last, I want to gather the men who fathered me over a large family-style dinner that is a physical impossibility except in my dreams. After a few drinks, 
Our memories would recede like the tide, and the day-to-day -day lives we lead would spill out in all their banal glory, and we'd laugh at how ordinary our days have become. And aren't we grateful for that kind of steadiness in our lives now? A chorus of six men calling me son might sound ludicrous to you, but to me, it's the sound of survival. Voices that have the power by the very noise they make to turn madness into song. With that, we've reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Brando Skyhorse and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering, with all these extraordinary experiences from his chaotic upbringing, where does Brando Skyhorse find himself today? I learned that, that stories were sort of essential to surviving this, this, uh, this uh, rather complicated family upbringing. So I uh, went to grad school. I went to Stanford University and uh, then went to grad school for two years and then moved out to New York and worked in publishing for 10 years as an editor. And all the while trying to get published and not being very successful. And then finally, I sold two books, the first of which was Madonna's, the second of which was a memoir. And so now I write books full time and I also teach at Wesleyan University as a visiting writer. So my, my career path has moved basically from being an advocate for other people's writing to becoming an advocate for my own writing. And, and I think I needed that process. I needed to work on other people's work so I could learn how to be more comfortable in my own skin. So the goal basically is to hopefully, you know, find a tenure track job at a university somewhere and, and teach creative writing and continue to write. I, I think that uh, in the process of writing both of these books and the memoir in particular, I'm really fascinated by the concept of passing. So my next book is gonna be an anthology in which we collect, uh, I'm working with a co-editor, uh, in which we collect uh, 15 other writers' works into an omnibus edition in which we talk about the concept of passing. Yeah, the idea of um, one person who's of ethnicity passing for something else. But that concept can be applied to so many different things. So it can be applied to gender, it can be applied to class, it can be applied to a bunch of different things. And uh, I find that uh, the more I, I discover about this topic, the more I realize that this is the life that, that I grew up living. This is the life that my mom wanted to live. And uh, it's, uh, it's an interesting and complicated dynamic. So that's, that's, I think, where my research is taking me. This next question is whether Skyhorse often returns to his native California. I, yeah, that, that's, um, so in the process of writing this book, I, I was stuck with the beginning. I, I didn't know how to begin. And uh, my ex-girlfriend, who's also a writer and just you know incredibly talented in terms of structure and such, she's like, "Why don't you see if you can find your biological father? He'd been gone for many years." And I thought, "Oh, you know that that, don't, that could take years, you know." And she's like, "Well, it might be an interesting way to open the book." So the idea is that I would hire a private investigator, do some research. Of course, I couldn't find him, and that would be sort of the framework. So I found him, 
in 10 minutes on, on whitepages.com. I had his name and he was there the whole time. He was living in a neighborhood called Whittier, California, which is about 30 minutes southeast of downtown Los Angeles. And I wrote him a letter and I included uh, an English version and a Spanish version. This is all in the book, by the way. And I waited and then a week later he called me back and uh, he immediately started speaking to me in Spanish. And what he didn't know, what I had to tell him was that I have a good friend who speaks fluent Spanish who translated for me because I didn't know if he could speak English or Spanish. And I was like, I'm sorry, just, no, stop, I don't know what you're saying. He's like, oh, your letter is so good, so professional, you know? Like, I thought you were so, so classically trained in Spanish. I was like, nope, that's not me. So, so we talked for about an hour, and it was as pleasant and as awkward as you could imagine talking to your father who took off when you were three and now being in my mid-30s. And so I, I told him the next time I was out in LA, I would go and visit him. And so I did, and I discovered that he had started over a brand new life, he has three new children, three daughters, and uh, we've been making an effort to kind of stay in touch. I get a call from him about maybe once a year. You know, it's, it's not ideal, but it is what it is. And uh, the sisters I just am in love with. I didn't have siblings growing up, and I just think they're the most amazing sisters that a brother could have. I will fight anyone here who, who says otherwise or who thinks they have better sisters. So we've been trying to get to get to know each other. And they're of you know, respective ages. Uh, I'm 42, my, uh, the eldest sister is I think 34, then 29, and my youngest sister is 16, she's applying to college. It's a definite spread. And uh, growing up, uh, they, the two sisters, two of the three had no idea that I existed. Even though my biological father, Candy though, had pictures from me when I was a young child and pasted them in the photo album. And when I saw my picture there, my middle sister, Kearney, she said, oh, we just thought that was a cousin or somebody. Like, we didn't know it was like, you know, our long lost brother. I mean, like, you know, Kenny would just kind of flip over. And, uh, you know, they would tease him mercilessly uh, for the fact that he had three daughters. And they're like, oh, God punished you. God punished you by giving you daughters because you never had a son. And little did they know. The eldest sister, Adriana, she, when she was at a birthday party, uh, she was about 12 or 13, and somebody came up to her and said, I know something that you don't know. You have a brother. You have a brother that lives in Los Angeles. Do you think your father's a good man? Go and ask him. Go and ask him about the son he doesn't see. Go ask about your brother. And she was terrified and never said anything, of course, because what a horrible, insane, crazy thing to say. But when Candy, though, gathered the whole family, said, oh, you know, I have this big announcement, you know, they brought everybody in, and you know, he said this. The two younger sisters were like, oh my God, is this real? And Adriana was like, of course. And the first thing she did was blame herself because she thought, maybe if I had said something, maybe if I confronted him, I wouldn't have had it to, I had to wait 20 some odd years to know that I had a brother. That's what she thinks. Of course, what I think is that she would have been put in a position where her father would have lied to her. I guess we'll never know the answer to that, though. This question asker wonders how Skyhorse would describe his biological father after recently meeting him for the first time. My biological father was a very hard worker. And he, he you know, he didn't go to college, but, you know, he supported his 
new family, and, and that's wonderful. I mean, he didn't just continue the cycle of just taking off and abandoning people. And, uh, you know, he raised three excellent children, all of whom went to college, one of whom has a master's in education. So I think he absolutely did right by them. Uh, I don't think he's book learned, book learned per se, but I don't think he really needs to be. Uh, he is a hard worker. And, uh, you know, he's gonna be, uh, he's gonna be working his job until, you know, he keels over at it. And uh, it's interesting in terms of the parallels between these two books because I didn't write, I wrote this book, this book was pop, this book was basically going to press before I met them or knew anything about him or where he was. And it's interesting to see the parallels between the two books, which was certainly not intentional. The opening that I read from Madonna's is based from the perspective of essentially um, a trabajadora, the, uh, outdoors, the guy who works outdoors, basically, a guy who works on construction sites. My biological father is a groundskeeper. Uh, in the final chapter of the book of Madonna's, uh, it's narrated by a young woman named Aurora. And I remember reading a few reviews, they're like, oh, Aurora, you know, it's kind of a stock name, like, you know, a lot, like, it's kind of stereotypical, you know. Uh, after, my, after my biological father left, he went and remarried another woman named, you guessed it, Aurora. Now, does the universe work in that kind of serendipitous way? I'm not so sure, but it certainly scared the hell out of me after I found that, <laughs> to be sure. So um, he lived, I think, a very um, noble life. And for that, I'm really happy for him and for his wife and for my sisters. And I think that I've had enough experience now with all the five stepfathers and, and sort of the circus-like atmosphere is that it just didn't break that way for me. And you know, I can say that after years of therapy, that's okay. But if you'd asked me that question 15 years ago, 10 years ago, I might've had a very different response. Our next audience member notes that Skyhorse seems so cheerful, but wonders if he ever found himself angry with his unusual upbringing. No, I was angry for many years, but uh, I think a number of things happened in that time. Uh, number one is that uh, I grew up in a very complicated, abusive household. And uh, my mother and my grandmother both died within 18 months of each other, which is not to say that all of a sudden my life came better, but that I wasn't being abused in an active way anymore. So it allowed me to go to therapy and deal with the therapeutic process and such. And, you know, that really helped. Um, more specifically, you know, having met my biological father and seeing that he's an older man now, and there's really nothing he could give me anyway. He can't give me money. He can't even really give me time. But he gave me an answer. He gave me an answer. He helped me understand why he left. Because for years, my mother had said, oh, he left because of you. He left because you kicked, you know, you were the reason he kicked out. And so when I finally asked him, is that true? He's like, no, 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 you know, like, of course not. But I needed to hear it from him. So that, I think, was really kind of, it was crucial to kind of getting that, that closure. And uh, whenever people have asked me, oh, do you know, do you, like, I'm adopted, should I go off and try to find my own parents? I always answer, it's like, you gotta have, you have to find out the, you have to find the answer that works best for you. And if that means making that call, make that call. If that means sending that letter, send that letter because I think that knowing is always better than not knowing. But then you know, and I think again, it's like given the, the horror show that I grew up in, like if he had rejected me, it certainly couldn't have been any worse than that. 
it would have just said, okay, well, that just kind of confirms certain notions. And that allows me to make my own peace. And I think that's the thing that I realize, and I know I'm probably sounding like really therapy speak here, but like it's about making your own peace. What, whatever they do, you have to make your own peace in whatever capacity that means. Another audience member asks how Skyhorse's grandmother reacted to his mother's decision to raise him as Native American. My grandmother was a very complicit character in all this. My, my grandmother felt that well, first of all, my grandmother at a certain point became terrified of my mother's anger and, and, and violence and just kind of wanted to stay out of the way. And, uh, but initially, I think my grandmother felt, oh, this is kind of like, it's funny. Like, I'll indulge this. It's, you know, I, I'll pretend to be an American Indian, too. My grandmother would kind of get in on that because my grandmother was just that kind of character. I don't think she thought through the, the consequences of what indulging my mother would lead to. And uh, it just became very apparent very quickly that it just got really dark really fast for my mother, that she literally started to believe it. And that coupled with the fact that she was working at home all the time, she stopped leaving the house. And in my, my grandmother, instead of like kicking her out or saying, you have to go pay rent, because my, you know, my mother lived rent free in my grandmother's house, she started indulging her more. So my mother, for example, would get these checks from the phone sex company mailed to her but she didn't want to leave the house. So she gave them to my grandmother. My grandma would have to go down there to check cashing place. And because we lived in a small neighborhood, everybody knew my grandmother. She could go cash a check, bring the money back to my mom. If my mom had like errands that like, you know, she wanted to run, my grandmother ran them or I ran them with my grandmother. So it became this, this thing where that almost became secondary as my mother's mental illness started to spiral out of control. My mother, my mother for a lot, I'm, I'm pretty confident that my mother was either borderline personality disorder or bipolar. I'm not convinced, I, I go back and forth one or the other, but it, it, was, it was pretty apparent by the mid 80s that she was suffering from this severe mental illness and uh, the consequences just got worse and worse as, uh, as we sort of went along. Our last question of the night pertains to the close-knit community Skyhorse and his family lived in early on in his life. How did his friends and neighbors interpret his family's often conflicting narratives about their ethnicity? Let me put it this way. Those communities are never monolithic. They're basically fluid. So, for example, like in the scene where I read my grandmother kind of float between all these different ethnicities, there was never anybody there to say, oh, hey, Mexican grandma, you should come and stay with us, the Mexicans, and blah, blah, blah. It was always kind of like back and forth. So when she would start saying, yeah, like I've got American Indian blood, they would be like, oh, grandma. You know what I mean? Like there was never any sort of, because why, because again, they're all people trying to live their own lives. So like, why, the, why would, the, I think the idea is like, why call this person out on their bullshit when it's such obvious bullshit, you know? And, and I think then to them, it's more kind of like, we're just trying to live our day-to-day -day lives. And here comes this crazy woman who says, well, she's Indian today and she's Mexican, someone else. Who are we to get in the way of that, you know? I, I think they, again, I think that's part of the reason that she was able to get away with it. It's the way my mom was able to get away with it. You know, uh, I mentioned this in the book. When I was uh, doing my events for the Madonnas of Echo Park, I had to do an event in Beverly Hills. And this woman came up to me, and it was my elementary vice school principal. And uh, she, we started talking, and I, because I was explaining my backstory, and she's like, you know, Brando, this is the first time that I realized you're a Mexican-American. I had no idea. Your mother was, and this is a quote, direct quote in the book, your mother was very convincing. 
And you have to remember this was the 1970s when you could just enroll students without like massive documents or paperwork. I think my mom said, oh, you know, he's American Indian and like they don't have formal certificates and we could just like waltz into the school and I got enrolled and nobody questioned her. Nobody called her out on it. I mean, it sounds astonishing to me, but like, again, that's, that's the way it was. So I, I think that the time and the place and my mother's personality, you know, most pathological liars are very charming. And who wouldn't want to say, oh my God, I just met this amazing American Indian woman. Who, who wouldn't want to believe that, you know? So I think a lot of people gave her a lot of, a lot of lead, basically. They gave her a lot of lead. And uh, I think that's what allowed her to manipulate these narratives for as long as she did. Does nobody else have any questions? Because if they don't, I can read one last section for you here. Uh, I, I spoke a little bit about my biological father, Candido, and uh, th this right here, um, if you read the memoir, you'll see that in the copyright note, it says, some names have been changed. And that is my assurance to you that everything in this book is as truthful as I could make it. I'm always I always have a problem with memoirs that say, oh, scenes have been compressed, characters have been combined. I hate that. Like, you know, that's what this is for. That's fiction right here. This is the memoir. This is nonfiction. I worked my ass off to make sure that everything here is as true as I could make it. And the reason I had to change the names is because my lawyers at SNS say, well, you have to change the names. So <laughs> I didn't really have much choice in that department. But um, I know I'm, what I'm about to read you might seem so, un and again, in a book where there's so much unbelievable stuff, it might seem unbelievable, but um, this actually happened. And uh, I was looking for an ending for the book. And when this finally happened, I thought, oh my God, where is there, I need a pen because I absolutely have to write this down. But I think after you hear this, you'll agree that uh, if you do buy the book and you read it, you'll see that this book with its long journey and complicated characters, uh, characters who were, characters struggling to find out who they really were, characters who had the best of intentions, uh, this book really couldn't have ended anywhere but here. And again, I just want to thank you for inviting me here into your, your library and spending an hour of my time. It was a really phenomenal experience for me. Uh, so, I lived with my birth father, Candy, though, for the first three years of my life. I've been in contact with him for the past three years of my life. Since we've gotten back in touch, we speak about once a year on my birthday. He knows I am busy, he says, which absolves us both, since I've called him just three or four times in return. I'm grateful he stays in touch and have no right to expect more because he is giving me everything he has left. I am disappointed because I am 35 years late and there is nothing more for us to offer each other. On the days I am cruel, I tell myself my father has failed me twice. On the days I am honest, I tell myself that had he stayed, we could have failed each other every day. Whenever conversation drifts to Candido's disappearance, as it does sometimes, not one of his family members uses the word abandon. Was there an inability to reconcile the kindly present father that my sisters knew with the absentee one? I didn't know. Both my sisters, Adriana and Karenie, are fiercely anti-welfare ignoring how welfare stepped in to do the job our father didn't, compensating for thousands of dollars in missing child support. Had I been looking at this in too one-sided a way? Was I in part the prodigal son? 
Over drinks and cigars, Adriana's husband, John, expresses initial concerns about my intentions. We didn't know who you were at first. I'm protective of this family, he said. Candy, though, is like a father to me. It was strange to hear him say that. How many men had I chased to be like a father to me? Was I doing the same with my own father? During the one Christmas I've spent with Candido's family, I was welcomed and embraced in the midst of a large togetherness I hadn't felt when I did have a family to share it with. Yet the part of me that remembered Christmas with my mother and my grandmother felt alone, alien, an outsider capable of understanding intimate gestures only by using a stolen dictionary. Then I saw Candido playing with Adriana's son, Dylan, my nephew, and heard him call Dylan Papas. Papas means potatoes in Spanish. Do you remember, Father, when you called me Papas? Sometimes the gap between Candido and me feels too great, like an aside to the family I want with my sisters. It's as if my mother ripped out the pages of my story with Candido as she read them, let them fall to her feet like plucked feathers, and then left Candido and me to reassemble our book without the benefit of page numbers. Maybe there wasn't enough time to bond when we were father and son and we've forgotten too much. Or maybe if he'd stayed, we would have reached the same place in each other's lives we are today anyway. Two men leery of our past, bound to stay connected by something more than obligation, but not quite yet love. A few months ago, in May 2013, my father showed up one Auburn afternoon at my sister Adriana's house where I was staying for a few days and invited me out to dinner. He drove me to a Mexican restaurant in a nondescript strip mall where we shared carnitas and a beer. He explained in his slow, proud English that through his job at 63 years old, he'd opened his first email account and was asked to pick a password. You'll have to check it every day, he was told. Choose something you won't forget. Candido, my father says, I chose Brando. Thanks for listening, guys. Had a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. Thank you. This St. Paul Public Library event with Brando Skyhorse will wrap up our 2015 club book season. Make sure to check back with us in January as we announce our winter-spring 2016 season lineup with more great authors. Podcasts of our previous discussions can be found on our website and iTunes. So if you have a minute, check them out. Over the past four years, we have had some incredible writers speak about their work, their process, and their journey. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may enjoy them too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, 
MinPost, Around Town Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.